Hi, this is Carla Bailo. Welcome to the Car Podcast. I'm joined today by Bill Newman. He is the Industry Executive Advisor, Automotive for the Customer Innovation Office at SAP North America. He has over 35 years of executive leadership, strategy, consulting, and practice management experience, balanced with extensive public speaking and higher education experience. Today, we're going to tackle electrification, the hot topic of the day. And we're going to start with talking about what does it mean for manufacturing? What does it mean for the assembly line of tomorrow? And how can data and data analytics help to be sure that we're being as efficient and managing quality as good as is required in the automotive industry? And then secondly, we're going to talk about the charging uh, experience. Many customers are having trouble today with their charging experience due to maintenance issues or incompatibility with plugs. How can data and data analytics help us to do a better job so that the consumer is always satisfied in the electrified world? Stay tuned. Welcome, Bill, to the podcast. Thanks, Carla. I've been excited to join you for some time, and I'm glad that we're here together today. Well, you and I have uh, chatted many times about things happening in the automotive industry. And, you know, quite frankly, I can't I can't think of a more fun time, I'll be honest. You know, for a geeky person like me, with everything happening with EVs, connectivity, autonomy, in all facets of mobility, everything from you know, fundamentally people on scooters and bicycles all the way up to 18 wheelers. So I'm really, really enjoying everything that's happening. But at the same time, we're hit with all these headwinds, right? With semiconductors and supply chain issues and perhaps soon to be some raw material issues. So I really wanted to kind of start with electric vehicles today. And and what that means kind of both for the assembly line and and then moving on through, you know, the ownership process for the individual. So we've, we've kind of done a lot of talking in the past about, you know, what about EVs? What are the components? But we haven't really dug into on this podcast so far, what does it mean for the manufacturing process or the skill sets, or the data and the data analytics. Um, what are you hearing on that front? And you know, what are some of the things that you're being asked by companies looking to make this transition? Yeah, well, thanks, Carla. And you, you're spot on. I mean, it's really an interesting area and an interesting time to, uh, to be there. So SAP has been very fortunate to work with some of the major automotive makers for decades now. And in fact, uh, where we're seeing this confluence between um, what we call uh, battery manufacturing and storage uh, makers to, uh, to EV vehicle platform and platform makers, all these startups springing up all over the place, established name brands that are moving deep and fast into this space. I think I think a couple of things that you see. I mean, from a from a manufacturing process perspective, you know, your an, an internal combustion engine is kind of built more uh, with the chassis and then and then the top built to fit. Uh, typically, that can be top down for a truck, bottom up for a car. When you're dealing with an EV, it's it's all skateboard enabled, and you build that and then you lay everything on top of it. 
kind of like assembling a big circuit board, you know, in a, in a, in a gigafactory. And um, it's really striking to see and, and the approach in the manufacturing world and the mindsets very, very different. So one of the things that we look at is, is not only manufacturing processes, but also the skills, the capabilities, the knowledge that workers are going to have to have in order to make that shift. It's, it's not out of hand seamless. It's a different process. There's different components. Um, you know, listeners, you know, your listeners are very affluent in the area of manufacturing technology to the common consumer. Uh, they don't understand the diminished set of, man- of mechanical parts that you normally would build in a internal combustion engine, give way to solid state and software, uh, and a lot of extra weight for all those battery packs right now. And we'll get into probably range and some range anxiety later in, in our conversation. Um, but there's just a different, you know, we talk about, you know, one, one value chain versus another in the top 100 suppliers in the ICE space and, and then, and a different set of top 100 suppliers in, in the BEV space. I think the other thing too, as we move into EVs is that you're seeing more from an industrial policy, but also corporate policy that there's, uh, a more tighter integration, um, to the stack meaning that uh, electrical powertrain and and the battery companies are doing tie-ups and they're not mutually exclusive, right? So Panasonic's working with uh, Tesla. Panasonic's also announced uh, uh, an initiative with Toyota here in North America to to build uh, capabilities in in region. Um, And I think that that tie-up comes from a lot of different reasons, like I said, both both, uh, industrial policy as well as uh, corporate policy. But you're seeing those tie-ups in that kind of knowing where my supply chain is very, very more tightly organized in the BEV space um, than you do in in traditional uh, gas-powered vehicle build. Yeah, I noticed in uh, GM's earnings call this week, you know, Mary Barra made a real, you know, good point that, hey, we've got our supply chains buckled down, which was interesting to hear And I don't know if that was always their plan or if that plan got strengthened because of what happened with the semiconductor crisis. We know Tesla has a very integrated supply chain. It seems like almost we're going back to the old Karitsu system. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I actually have dropped Alfred Sloan's name a couple of times in the last months. You know, we're not we're not going back to that where I'm I'm buying everything and I'm integrating everything. Uh, but you can see some of that philosophy. You know, the pendulum is swinging back the other way. Um, you know, Mary and the GM team are doing a great job. Uh, I was at a town hall meeting with them. We were talking about, you know, just how they're going to make, you know, EV available to everyone. And, you know, they're not the only OE that is out there, you know, tightly integrating their supply chains. Mm-hmm. We've heard from suppliers and OEs alike, you know, some pretty, you know, uh, very specific show me the parts in this lot you are building that are mine conversations. So, you know, communication early often, as we always say in the, in the automotive space, is, is very important, even more so now. And I think it's good to also point out to listeners, you know, it's all about component shortages. You know, we it, the press gives a lot of, of mention to semiconductors and batteries, but the thing that started to take vehicles offline first was a sunroof you know, noise deadening foam Mm -hmm. in the door panel. So these are kind of mundane things that most consumers don't think about. But, you know, for those who 
live and breathe supply chain and automotive every day, you know, they're just as apt to, you know, halt assembly as they would, you know, a semiconductor mm-hmm. or, or another chipset. Yeah, we always say here at CAR, if there's 9,000 parts that you need on a car, you can't build it with 89.99. You know, that one part can make a huge difference. Now, of course, sometimes they can retrofit, but we all know that retrofit is tricky and will impact quality beyond a shadow of a doubt. And expensive. <laughs> yes, sir. So, yes. you know, the, the more you can avoid that, the better. So we know that an EV has fewer parts. Um, and one of the questions that we often get asked at CAR is, um, does that mean that there will be fewer workers needed on the assembly line? And, and we say yes, of course, because there are fewer parts, so there's fewer actions. But in addition to that, in the new plants, we're starting to see a lot more automation as well, partly probably because, you know, just getting human talent this day, these days is very difficult. But you know, in general, the electric vehicle process is easier to adapt to more automation. And it's much different than, you know, we we have this vision in our mind of a manufacturing plant. And I actually love this vision, you know, of weld, you know, sparks flying and, you know, the, the paint fumes and, you know, just a plethora of activity with things coming together and workers surrounding a car like a, like a bee. But we're actually seeing for the Ford F-150, for example, that they aren't even having a line. They're having robots move the vehicle from station to station. Um, Are we going to see a lot more in in your view and in in some of your work? Are you starting to see a lot of new manufacturing methodologies come about because of EVs? Yeah, for sure. Um, 100%. Now, Now, I'll point out to listeners that, you know, some processes so far are constant, you know, paint booths. You know, there's going to be a paint station for electric vehicles as well, right? You know, and maybe people are getting to the point where they're just going to do some kind of, I don't know, powder adhesive and the the body cap will just come. It'll be pre-colored. Hard to see that just yet. We've played with that technology in the past. Hasn't really resonated yet with consumers because it kind of looks different. Mm-hmm. Um, but for sure, lights out manufacturing is is not science fiction and and for sure, it's easier to do that when you have fewer parts that you're trying to assemble. Mm-hmm. So it really comes down to um, the culture of the organization, uh, factor costs in terms of labor, right? Because sometimes automation is more expensive uh, than labor in some markets, right? So you're kind of getting back to what we used to call Dazamaza, design anywhere, source anywhere, make anywhere, service anywhere, but on a regional basis, and you're kind of reconsidering what you're doing in that particular region. So I might be building the same, you mentioned the F-150. I might be building the same F-150, but it's going to be built differently potentially. And I'm not making a statement, you know, no forward looking statements here one way or another, but you know, a vehicle could be built very, very differently in Europe in China, in other parts of Asia Pacific, in North America. Um, So it's going to get very interesting how we differentiate to that. Again, I do think that there's going to be certain industrial and national policies that will play a hand in that. Mm -hmm. As most listeners know, many manufacturing environments uh, in China are state-owned and controlled. Many in Europe have 
uh, a high a support from the local governments there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously there's, there's more of a kind of a free market capitalist approach to business mm-hmm. here in North America. So those are the things that I think we'd kind of look at. But coming back to your initial question, for sure, lights out manufacturing, we could design to it and execute it tomorrow if we wanted to. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, just like so many other things we're trying to autonomize, it's really more regulatory policy and more cultural adoption that really stand in the way at this point in time. And what does that mean for the need on the on the floor for data and data analytics, for quality, for fit and finish and, you know, all the things or many of the things today that fundamentally we, re- we rely on humans to check and with gauges, et cetera? Well, it certainly places that at a much higher premium and, and much more higher importance. You know, you're you're going to use humans in more of a lights out manufacturing environment to do the QA quality control, but they have to be able to manage and uh, interpret information coming off the line. You know, if they're not present or if they're in a, uh, a booth far away from the work cell, they need to be able to have that data real time and accurate. And, you know, not and in some cases, even preemptive. Right. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. tell me what this could look like in another, you know, 100 feet, another four work cells down the line so that we can, um, you know, you mentioned Kaizen. So we could you know, kind of interpret uh, and and adapt to the issues before they might even Mm -hmm. happen. Um, So that would be critical to to moving to a full lights out production, even with humans in a high touch, more supervisorial type of setting. Yeah, for sure. Hey, let's move to the user, the customer experience, because in today's world, everything is about the customer experience. And every time I say that, I I get a little bit teary-eyed because, you know, I spent too many years on the proving ground driving around, you know, checking ride and handling and making sure that, you know, the car was better than the other one and, and powertrain performance and all the things that, quite frankly, today's customer some just don't give a darn about it. So when we talk about an electric vehicle, though, that means many different things. It includes the charging infrastructure. And if we look online, I just saw it on Twitter today because I haven't gotten off Twitter yet, despite the fact that Elon Musk has bought it, although it's not closed. I'm still on there. And somebody was saying they went to a charging station at 11 o'clock at night. A lady was there with a particular vehicle that needed a charge. And None of her cards were working and she's in tears because she can't charge her vehicle. And this person, you know, being a good Samaritan helped her out. But in this case, all the charging stations were working. I think as we know from the data, the biggest complaint right now is people go to a charging station and number one, there may not be one that fits their charger type, be it combo, Chatamo, or of course, Tesla has their own. And secondly, they're not working. There's no maintenance happening to these things. Um, you know, what do we need to do better from, you know, data or tracing or some management, you know, to be able to know, hey, these aren't working, don't even bother to go there. And then more importantly, so the manufacturer knows they're not working and somebody gets there to fix it. Well, there's a couple of big, big topics. So let's kind of unpack that. So from a from a driver passenger type of experience, you know, uh, you have you have more of an opportunity. And I think in the uh, design of an electric vehicle, particularly as we look to autonomize those designs, 
So, you know, obviously electrifying and autonomizing vehicles are two very different things, but one can certainly imagine uh, in, in, a, in a more renewable electrified world that autonomizing the vehicle, particularly as we're looking to do shuttles and hotel circuits and things like that would definitely be something we would want to decarbonize. So for sure, that's kind of, there's a blend there and a feathering of that. But, but you know, the driver experience that you and I enjoy, we grew up with, we got our licenses the day we turned 16, you know, that is something that the current generation doesn't put a high value on anymore. Uh, and having said that, the, the shift now is moving towards, you know, how many plugs, how many uh, gaming devices can I have? How many, uh, how many Wi-Fi connections can I have in the vehicle? Do I have 5G? Um, those are all the things that are shifting to um, the backseat passenger experience, which arguably has as much, if not more, value to car makers as the, the front seat driver experience. There'll be a report coming out shortly from uh, the uh, Experiences Per Mile Advisory Council, and we're going to take a deeper dive into what does that experience per mile look like depending on how you're using the vehicle. So there's just a little teaser, be on the lookout for that. As it relates to infrastructure and charging, yeah, you know, we're in the early stages, right? Um, moving forward, it's, it's, it's easy to imagine that gas stations become energy stations, right? Um, and we do have infrastructure kind of spot available. Don't have a foresight and a crystal ball to say how that largely private network will electrify, but one can certainly imagine, particularly in places like California, EU, where they're going to have uh, regulations incentivizing uh, EV and, and prohibiting the sale of new passenger vehicles that are ICE uh, powertrain, that, that you can definitely see an incentive there. But you're not going to be able to charge everything in your home. So uh, independent electrified network is, is hugely important. Uh, making sure the grid is balanced to meet that new demand is also extraordinarily important. Um, so we'll make some we'll make some headway, I think, based on infrastructure. Um, the current administration, at least in the U.S., has mm -hmm. promised a significant outlay for infrastructure. As a part of the GM briefing that you mentioned, GM's dedicated to having, I think, a, a very strong footprint in their partnership with EVgo. So it'll be interesting to see what public and what private initiatives suggest that we're able to do, particularly in the next five to 10 years as we kind of move towards that eventual BEV tipping point. Yeah, for sure. And how can we think about making the user experience even better when it comes to the charging infrastructure? How can we be more clear with the consumer? Yes, this particular station is full, but you know, you have enough range to go to this next one or somebody's almost at 80% and their time's going to be out, up or whatever. Because I can easily see in the future, you know, when you go into a gas station today and you see everybody lined up, like, you know, Costco's famous for this, you know, super big lines, you know, hey, I'm going to wait because I know it's not going to be that long or, you know, gosh, there's too many people there. It's not worth it. I'm not that close to empty. You know, how can we do a better job to really, you know, almost have the vehicle tell the person, by the way, you're at 40%. I know you might be getting nervous, but you know you can make it to this next one and nobody's there and heck, I'll reserve a spot for you. 
Yeah, well, you know, vehicles do tell us even in a gas powered world, you know, here's you're you're running low, you're at 50, 60 miles. Uh, would you like us to pull up maps to show you where you can go gas up? So that I, I think we can certainly imagine that moving towards an electrified network. And again, you know, as gas stations become energy stations, they'll have multi-purposes for that. I think it gets very interesting as corporations try to own that infrastructure, because don't forget, there's a lot of margin that can be made on, on, a, on a micro and a macro level on that. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's a preference or a deal that gets sent you know, to premium users of ABC brand. You know, They're going to go to a particular charging station because they're a preferred member or a customer, they get a certain discount, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a lot of different things that you can do to incentivize people to go to different places, just like Costco does. I mean, you know, you're a member, we're going to give you one of the best prices for gas, if not the best, you know, that you will find. One can imagine that that kind of behavior will extend into the electrified world. It's really just going to be a question of like I think you pointed out earlier, Carla, it's, you know, supply, demand and availability. And, you know, if if the if the system is smart enough to not just say, hey, here are the five places that you can go to get more energy. If they can be, you know, even more intelligent to say of those five, these two, you're going to get the best discount. And oh, by the way, you're going to be able to, to move forward to that. That would be great, too. There's also new technologies. We were just watching on the news this week, you know, the the in-road charging pads that, you know, basically can restore energy. And on a lower grade, you know, it's very prototype right now. Um, here in Michigan, you know, Governor uh, Whitmer has said, you know, she wants to make sure, and it's an initiative in the state of Michigan as the world's automotive capital of knowledge that we are going to have highway-based in-motion charging. We don't know what that's going to look like, mm-hmm. um, but I think, it's a, I think it's a great moonshot to put out there. We certainly have enough engineering talent in this state um, to take that on, uh, and we need to lead in those areas because it would, it would alleviate so many other problems as it comes to charging, range anxiety, infrastructure, and capacity. Yeah, for sure. If we can crack that nugget and and be able to to charge while driving and, you know, in addition to that, get solid state batteries out there, we're going to we're going to have just everybody will want an EV then. Let me ask one more question related to what you mentioned earlier, the um, charging grid itself. You know, we're starting to see microgridding become quite popular. We're starting to see a lot more sustainable energy because fundamentally, you need to charge an EV with sustainable energy, right? To have that zero carbon footprint. Would you envision, and this is something in my mind, hey, you can charge now if you like, but you're going to have surge pricing because of the time of day and because of the usage or because of the season. Um, And then maybe your car will tell you, hey, you know, you can wait another one hour because they've gotten information from the power company that it's going to be 10 cents less, you know, per kilowatt hour then. I don't know. You know, what What are you thinking? Some of the smart things that may be able to come about? Yeah, well, again, you know, um, I, I think you touched on it uh, just a moment ago, Carla. If, if you're driving an EV, it doesn't inherently make it eco-friendly. So first of all, let's make sure that we're putting... Um, you know, good, uh, clean energy sourced electricity into the car. I mean, I, I'm famous for saying China has enough coal to burn for their 
uh, electric uh, power plants for 3,000 years, right? Mm-hmm. So that is not a clean energy solution. There may be a lot of electric vehicles on the road there, but it is not a clean energy solution. Um, so let's, let's, you know, obviously it's going to be a blend and we can try to mix that portfolio to be cleaner as we, as we move forward. Right. And I think that's a big goal for everyone. Um, you know, for sure, being able to charge, you know, at, at off peak would be good, you know, charging in the home for those who are privileged enough to be able to do that. Um, also, we're seeing battery makers who are getting into the BEV space, that, that BMS subcategory. They're also taking their technology and they're building them for industrial and campus uses. This is a great application because um, it's not about just creating the energy. It's also about storing electricity. Storing electricity is very expensive currently, mm-hmm. right? So if you could actually come up with um, some type of industrial size charging and then storage uh, uh, element, and you could make that available to hospitals, schools, um, so that they're bringing off-peak energy, holding it for on-peak use. There's a huge value potential there. And again, another great you know, part of the solution to offset and alleviate some of these issues with the grids. Most of the battery making companies that we're speaking to, particularly in the startup side, they view that as perhaps in the long term, even a greater value potential in terms of market and, and category than perhaps the initial uh, entree into the the BEV plate space. Um, So it's going to be really interesting to watch where that technology goes. Oh, I fully agree. Well, we've uh, tackled all we can in the time that we have. Bill, I'd like to thank you so much for being a guest on the CAR Podcast. You're very welcome, Carla. Pleasure to be with you and great to be with your listeners today. 